Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Stretching across the north of England from coast to coast are the 73-mile-long remnants of a fortification built by the Roman army during the reign of the Emperor Hadrian. It is the largest of the many monuments left by the Roman Empire and one of the most famous. For centuries, the purpose of Hadrian's Wall and the life of those who built it and lived near it were shrouded in archaeological mystery. My guest today on Historically Thinking is Adrian Goldsworthy, and in his new book on Hadrian's Wall, he illuminates the subject by synthesizing the latest research and bringing to bear his powerful historical imagination on the subject. Speaking of historical imagination, Adrian has simultaneously in the U.S. published a novel set along the wall, or along what's called the Proto-Wall, the second of a series, uh, at the same time as his study of the wall itself, out now from basic books, and this is Adrian's second appearance on the Historically Thinking podcast. Adrian, welcome. Well, thank you for having me back. So you've written numerous books on the Roman army. Um, and in many ways, uh, the wall is itself, I guess it would be fair to say it's the most enduring visible legacy of the Roman army, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, we we forget that a lot of it is invisible today, but what's left is pretty big. And the, the best preserved sections are in this gorgeous rolling countryside in the, the central section of the wall. So it's it's very powerful. And it's this sort of image, you know, a wall, this is where civilization ends and barbarism begins or domination ends and freedom begins, depending on how you want to look at it. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a monument of the army, but it's also a symbol that's so evocative. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Now, it's certainly perhaps the, the phrase, the, the t- name Hadrian's Wall is, is familiar, but let's, uh, for those who've maybe just seen that, have gone to the museum at Vindolanda, or people have just only heard of it, let's describe the sort of terrain, the area, where it runs from point to point. Well, it essentially goes from the east coast of what's now northern England to the west coast. So it starts on the River Tyne, nowadays it's the big city of Newcastle, runs through fairly gentle, you know, slightly rolling landscape, but not particularly hilly. As it goes towards the central section, 
you start to climb more and more. And whilst this is never mountainous, it's it's still very much a rolling up and down hills, cliffs, quite start, steep slopes. Um, in some places, sort of you know, up and down in a very short space of time, in less than a mile, it'll pitch up and down sort of three or four times. Um, then it starts again to become a bit gentler towards you end up the final western part is actually almost along the beach you know mm-hmm. it's along the coastline towards bonus on solway looking towards again what will become the coast of, of southern scotland and not too far really across the irish sea from northern ireland so it it's it bridges the narrowest point of the British Isles, or almost the narrowest point, because the Antonine wall, wall further north between sort of Edinburgh-Glasgow line, that actually is the narrowest point of the mainland. But this is going as far north as the Romans wanted to at that stage. This is really the sort of the most convenient place to draw a barrier, draw a line. Now, wh- one thing that it, I hadn't realized until I finally visited was the the wall was that there were um, there was a sort of a zone. Uh, both north of it and south of it. I mean, uh, and I, I think from your book that that predates the wall, the construction of the wall itself. There's a sort of defensive zone. Is, is that it right? Is a, it begins really, or we tend to think of it beginning as a road. It's called the Stain Gate, which is the, uh-huh. the stone gate. That's, that's an Anglo-Saxon name. We don't know what the Romans called it, that runs very close to the line of what would become Hadrian's Wall. And this was all part of the Romans have been in that area for 40 years before they build the wall. But they've also been further north. In the, the 80s AD, they go up quite you know far into Scotland, certainly to the edge of the highlands, and look as if they're planning permanent occupation because they're building forts and fortresses and frontier lines there. And then when a few years abandon it, in case of the big legionary fortress at Inchtutil, before it's quite been completed, and they pull south again and they gradually come further and further south. But it's always... The biggest mistake is to think of Hadrian's Wall as the simple barrier that it is in popular imagination, that this is the sort of the line where the empire stops. Because as you say, it's not. It's part of a much bigger system. There are outpost forts beyond it for some considerable distance. And there are also supporting forts along the coast in the west, particularly, but also to some extent in the east to the south. It's part of a road network. It joins together into the broader military system of the Roman province and then the Roman Empire. So it's it's one aspect. It's the most visible, the most obvious reminder, but it's one part of a much bigger system. So there are actually, there are sort of fort outposts in Scotland, in modern Scotland, north of the wall? Yes. I mean, the, the one that's maintained for the longest is Newstead, which is abandoned early in the second century, then reoccupied. Um, you have the period in the 160s AD when they abandon Hadrian's Wall altogether and build the Antonine Wall, which they occupy for 20 years at the most, probably a bit less, which in terms of the occupation of Roman Britain isn't a long time, but that's most of somebody's military service. That's quite a, you know, 20 years is a big chunk of your lifetime. So it's it's a significant change. When they pull back from that, outposts remain beyond. And of course, you've got to remember, we see, you know, we see the forts, we see the, the physical re- reminders of Roman presence, but that's just where the, the army lives. Mm-hmm. The soldiers from those forts operate beyond them, and the diplomacy and the political activity stretches even further. So, again, Roman influence, Roman presence is something that's registering far into the north of Scotland for a very long time. So it's, as I say, the wall is a sort of an aspect of this, part of it that, that underlies it, but it's not, it's far from being the whole thing. 
Uh, let's briskly go through the Roman um, invasion, occupation of Britain up to uh, the point of the construction. Um, what was Britain to Rome before uh, they invaded and, and why did they invade Britain? Well, it's quite interesting because you get poets like Horace writing at the end of the first century BC, trying to inspire the Emperor Augustus to go and invade Britain. You know, Augustus is the first emperor. His um, great uncle, Julius Caesar, had raided Britain. He'd landed twice in 55 and 54 BC, but he hadn't stayed more than a couple of months. And he'd really only been in the southeast. Um, and it was more just, you know, he claims to have sort of brought the Britons under Rome's sway, but there's no really, there's no occupation, there's no taxation or anything like that as far as we can tell. Augustus doesn't invade Britain. And just around about the time of his death, you have the Greek geographer Strabo saying quite um, frankly, in a sort of, you know, very matter of fact way that, well, we could occupy Britain if we wanted to, but the size of the garrison you'd need to hold it and the cost of all those soldiers and troops wouldn't actually justify the profit you'd gain from conquering it because there's not a lot there. And it's much better just to levy tolls on goods coming from Britain into the Roman Empire and trade with them than it is to conquer them. It's simply not worth our while. And Augustus, Tiberius, his successor, they don't intervene in Britain, even though we know several British exiled leaders come to Rome begging to be restored to power by the Romans. It's a pattern that happens throughout Rome's expansion. The same thing happens in AD 43, and then the Emperor Claudius does decide to go to Britain. But you've got to remember, this is the Claudius, you know, um, perhaps most familiar to us from Robert Graves and from the old BBC um, adaptation from the 70s, the man who had no political career, who drooled, who stammered, who limped, who hadn't any military reputation whatsoever, and is made emperor when the Praetorian Guard find him hiding behind a curtain in the palace after the Emperor Caligula's been murdered, and the Praetorians simply need an emperor, they don't care who it is, because obviously you can't be a highly paid bodyguard to an emperor if there isn't an emperor. So Claudius needs glory, so he decides that this whole, it's not really worth the, the cost, there won't be any benefits from it, is less important than his glory, sends a large army to Britain, and it's one of the last provinces added to the Roman Empire, last major provinces, and even then they're here for 350 years. Whether Claudius wanted to occupy all of the island or just the southeast, we don't really know. But steadily under Claudius and Nero, Roman expansion um, continues. More and more of Britain is occupied. There's the big rebellion of Boudicca in AD 60 that burns down Londinium, what would become London, and two other major cities, kills a lot of people but is defeated. After that, there's no trace of rebellion in lowland Britain at all. It seems fairly stable. But there's still a very heavy military presence in the West initially, but then all the way through in the northern parts of the British Isles. But it's it's only in the 80s when they're driving into Scotland that they confirm that Britain is in fact an island. They, they have fairly hazy ideas as to just you know, how the geography works and how big this place is. But it's almost, if it begins as a vanity thing, it's then one of those, those decisions that you can't go back on. So no emperor wants the loss of prestige of abandoning the island. So Roman Britain happens. It's it's fairly prosperous. It's fairly well settled. It's peaceful. It never produces a senator of Rome, which virtually every other province in the empire does. And it doesn't get really very wealthy indeed until about the, the third to fourth centuries AD. But it's still 
quite successful. It's, you know, you don't have the magnificent monuments you'll get in southern France or Spain or Syria or, you know, North Africa. There, there isn't quite that grandeur of Roman city life here. It's, it's always... It's it's always on the fringes of empire, but in cultural terms and in terms of goods available and this sort of thing, it's it's very much part of the empire and that system and that culture. It struck me visiting um, Roman villas uh, sites in the Cotswolds, for example, that uh, if you're a Roman aristocrat or I, I don't know who actually occupied those villas, um, but that's a pretty nice life. Um, it is by comparison to living in an Iron Age roundhouse, which is, you know, cozy in its way, but it's very crowded. The probability is a lot of the people living there will be local aristocrats who've joined the Romans, as many tribes do. Quite a lot of the tribes never fight the Romans at all. They welcome them from the start. And even the ones that do fight, there are usually chieftains who either make peace with Rome or um, change sides soon enough to benefit from it or other ambitious local families that will take over becoming the local aristocracy. So, you know, most of the people living there in this very Roman lifestyle are probably Britons. Mm -hmm. There will obviously be people from overseas as well. So for many, um, it's certainly a more comfortable lifestyle and more generally, you know, one thing that's always striking when you look at archaeological sites that are occupied before and after the Roman period and during is the amount of small finds, the little objects you get. You'll get a few for the, the pre-Roman period, you'll get a few for afterwards, but you get box after box after box of bits and pieces and, you know, it's brooches and it's belt buckles and it's bits of glass and it's bits of pottery. There are simply more things. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of them have come from hundreds or even thousands of miles away till very late on. So you are part of that imperial economy. The trade is getting through. You can see that. We'll talk about the Vindolanda tablets a bit later on, but they're on the fringes of the empire. They have access to pretty well all the goods you could get elsewhere. Yeah. Early on in the Roman period, so. they're a part of a consumer culture. Uh, of, of Very much so. It's 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 sheer. That's the big difference in the Roman period. It's the sheer quantity of everything. Yeah. Not you know there there were fine objects. There were fine works of art of practical use available before, but very few people had them, and probably not everybody in the Roman period gets them. But a lot more of society has access to, and you'll find some of these things even in the people who are living in the iron age roundhouses and who haven't changed the way they live they've got roman goods they've got roman objects so the um how many uh, legions occupied britain during its uh, during the period of roman when it was a roman province the initial invasion is conducted by four legions okay the number fluctuates. It drops to three near the end of the first century and then probably briefly to just two in the period around about Trajan's reign, before Hadrian sends a third there, and then it remains three legions there pretty much for the rest of, of the Roman occupation. And that legion probably partly arrives to build Hadrian's Wall. Is that a lot, three for a, a province the size of Rome? It's very big. By that period, there were only two other provinces in the empire that had three legions in them. And later in the century, Britain will be divided into two provinces administratively, with one legion in one and two in the other. Because that's the big thing. You've got, apart from the fact that no, no government likes spending money on the military and committing that number of resources to one place unless they have to. But from the point of view of a Roman emperor, a large Roman army is dangerous because the people you fear most are the rivals in the Senate, the army commander who's going to turn against you and try and make himself emperor. They're the ones who can kill you. Foreigners will probably never manage that. Mm -hmm. So any large concentration of troops is a danger to the emperor who controls them. 
Hence the fact that they tend to sort of divide up these commands. But even so, two legions and a lot of auxiliaries is still a very large force. And it's no coincidence when there's the big civil war after the murder of Commodus in 193. The three leaders who emerge command the three biggest provincial armies. And and it happens again and again and again because they've just got access to the troops. So, you know, they can make and Britain is a very good base for launching an attempt to take over the rest of the empire because it's fairly secure. Mm -hmm. And and I guess you you have that pattern right down to 410 and the uh, official, unofficial um, leaving sort of um, leaving of Britain by the Romans. Yes, it continued. I mean, the the last few, three, four years of Roman rule, there were three emperors proclaimed in Britain. And the last one, Constantius III, crosses to Gaul, occupies quite a lot of that before he's finally beaten. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, the, the civil war just goes on and on from the third century AD onwards. They never really, there are only three decades without a civil war until the end of the empire in the West. It just goes on and on. And Britain is inevitably involved because it has so many soldiers. So, it, so it, it's one of what are the other two uh, provinces that has have that n- number of uh, soldiers in them or legions? In You've them? got uh, Pannonia on the Danube and then Syria huh. in the east. So you've always got to keep a number of troops in Syria because of the threat of Parthia and later Persia. So right. it's it's this double-edged sword. You can't have too few troops there, otherwise you're vulnerable and you'll get blamed for that as well. But if you let too many be in one place under one man, that's a potential risk as well. So the emperor's got to balance all of these factors. And, and yet it doesn't seem to me, I mean, I, I, it, that Britain, um, there uh, that many is, that the threat from the rest of Britain is uh, as extreme as the threat of Parthia against Syria. Well, that's the problem. That's the great puzzle. Because Britain is talked about so little, in the ancient sources, you know, we we really hardly hear about it at all in the second century, third century, and fourth century. You get little snippets, little incidents, and we don't know why they build Hadrian's Wall, why they keep so many troops there. Um, it's and we know nothing at all from the point of view of the peoples living to the north of the wall. You know, what is the threat? Why is there when the wall is built? There's a whole series of coastal defences with towers, with little fortlets that are like the turrets and mile castles on the wall. Go all the way around the west coast of Cumbria for at least a generation before they're abandoned, and forts stay there anyway. Now. What's the threat there? Are these people coming from the west coast of Scotland? Are they coming across from Ireland? Clearly, you think there is a risk that if you don't have these troops there, then someone's going to come in and raid. And it's becoming clearer that the the prosperity of the Roman province in Britain does extend much closer to the wall and much more into the north than we used to think. Hmm. So, you know, this is quite a well-off area, but it's it's not going to bring down the empire if somebody raids here. Right. So it's, it's But it's part of the... Preserving the emperor's peace, the Roman peace, Roman dominance. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it, it, it is hard to see. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's an important point because a Parthian, a strong Parthian army, actually could hurt the empire very badly um, by passing through to well, as far as Egypt, if it was if the defenses were down, um, and Egypt is crucial to the health of the empire. And it's the prestige, but Antioch is threatened more than once by Parthian and Persian armies and, and sacked yes. on, on occasion. So, you know, you have, the, you can see that. You can see this is a very settled, prosperous area. Yeah. It's hard to see quite the same risk in Britain. And yet, for centuries, they keep these troops there. Now, there is a possibility. There's a, um, it looks as if the barrack blocks within the forts on the wall are reduced in size by roughly half or maybe a little bit less than that 
in the middle of the third century AD. Now, it could be that while we have all these units of the army that are called cohorts and legions and the various other types that come in later on, they're all nominally there, that in fact, in terms of the real strength and number of soldiers they have, they're significantly smaller than, say, the units you have in Syria or on the Danube. But we don't have the evidence to know one way or the other. That's just a, a hint from the barracks, but it depends on, you know, this is based on about three sites at the moment where we've seen this happen and we're assuming it's universal. So the let's let's go to the construction of Hadrian's Wall. Um, that's where we've been moving back and forth. Let's go to what is approximately the dates of the construction? Well, traditionally, the date is always given as 122 AD because we know that in that year, Hadrian came to Britain. The only time he visited the province, the only emperor to come to the province since Claudius for a couple of weeks after the invasion. You know, it's not really a priority for imperial visits, but Hadrian, the great traveler, um, comes to the province and the old view used to be, he goes right up to Northern Britain, listens to the, the locals and the soldiers on the spot, realizes there's a problem with raiding or some threat from the North and says, build me a big wall. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a new theory that compares, we know that there's a, a smaller structure than Hadrian's wall that's just timber and earth that's built in Germany that ties in with Hadrian's visit. Now it's now clear from the dating of the timbers that these were felled a couple of years before he arrives. So does the emperor come to the province and give orders or does he from Rome or elsewhere send orders, I want a wall built here and then come in one, two, two to inspect something that's already being built. We just don't know enough about how the Roman sort of administrative mindset worked. And you, you can see either either one could make sense. Though I, I must confess, I do like the idea of him coming to see a little bit of this project, because what's interesting is then there are there are early on in the wall's design there are major changes, and you can't help wondering if this is Hadrian turning up and saying, "No, I don't like that. Do it this way." He he is quite the works administrator. Um, Very much so, and, he, and he's fascinated with architecture. I mean, you've only got to go to his villa in Tivoli or the Pantheon in Rome, and you know he he likes to design things. He, he remodels Athens. He just he's fascinated with this. So the probably the scale of Hadrian's Wall, which is bigger than any other frontier fortification the Romans ever make, and it's just more complicated, it's grander, has something to do with Hadrian coming and saying, I want this, and these are some of his ideas. Um, and it's even for a generation or so, we, we've recently discovered called the, the Valum Ilium, the Wall of Ilius, which is his, his family name. So it, it is for a while called something like Hadrian's Wall, though later on it just becomes the Valum, the wall. Hmm. I, I wanted to... Uh note what you uh, referred to is that there this is not the only uh, border fortification in the Roman Empire um they they go th- along the entire perimeter don't they in, in one way or the other it depends I mean where there's a big convenient river like the Rhine or Danube yeah. they tend to use that and they'll put forts and they'll put outposts along it but they won't connect it up however the gap between the Rhine and the Danube where they wanted to cross that that's got a an earthwork it's a ditch and a timber stockade I mean it's it's more like a sort of garden fence I mean it's not <laughs> really grand it would it would be difficult to get through but it's it's definitely not a sort of a wall like Hadrian's wall that could have had a walkway on top or anything like that it's timber it's not stone so they use these they use dry stone walls in some of the desert areas in North Africa that look as if they're they're designed to sort of channel the seasonal movement of some of the tribes that would come through, the, the nomads and semi-nomads coming to the province to trade, to, to find seasonal work, and then go out again, making sure they come in in an area where the army can see what's going on and make sure they're not getting up to anything that you don't want them to. And probably also 
um, register them, uh-huh. levy tolls on them coming through, all this sort of thing. So there are other structures. And of course, there's the Antonine Wall, which is Hadrian's Wall to a in timber and earth and in a slightly different design to the north that's occupied for 20 years or so. It is interesting that if, if I was going to, if you would think that as a Roman administrator, the place I would build the biggest damn wall I possibly could would be between the Rhine and the Danube. Um, uh, and yet Hadrian's Wall is more impressive. Um, it's, it's very, very curious, the whole thing. It is. There are lots of puzzles. I remember talking to an archaeologist while I was writing this book, and he's someone who spent his whole life excavating on the wall. And, you know, I was saying the more and more I look at this in detail in a way I haven't done before, the less I understand about it and the more questions I've got. His comment was, well, I think you're on the right lines. (laughs) That was a story of his life, the feeling that he was knowing less and less, the more, because it's, uh, you know, more than 90% of it's never been touched, excavated in any way. The Romans don't tell us what it was for or how it worked. So you're, and a lot of the excavation was done in the 19th century, early 20th century by methods that, you know, fall very short of the standard now. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, we keep, anytime there is a major excavation on the wall, we get a surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are lots more out there waiting to come along. We haven't talked yet about what the wall looked like in its, uh, at its apex of its uh, construction. So if, if I was coming from the north to the wall, uh, what would I see as I passed through it? So what, what, what are the features of it that I would note? Well, in the first generation, you'd, if you were coming to the western half of the wall, the western sort of 30 miles or so, it would be in timber and earth and, and turf rather than stone. But afterwards, when the, they come back from the Antonine Wall, the whole thing is replaced in stone. But if you're in that period, so say later in the second century, you've already come past Roman forts and Roman roads in the outposts, and the Roman presence will have been obvious for a while. But you'll come up to, first of all, If it's in the central section, you'll see it from a long way away because it crowns the heights. And it's basically from one horizon to the other, there's this tall, light-colored wall running along the top. And it's got turrets at regular intervals. It's got mile castles every Roman mile. And every seven miles or so, there's a big fort. When you get up even closer to see it, first of all, you'll see the ditch which runs most of the way along the north, except where there's nature has provided a cliff or something, and there's just no point whatsoever in adding that. But normally there's a deep ditch, and it's angled so that it doesn't give you cover if you run into it from people on the wall or turrets. You're always visible. Beyond the ditch, there's a period of flat, there's a base of flat land up to the wall itself that's covered, again, this is a fairly recent discovery, in wooden stakes sharpened, some of them mounting other stakes with lots of other points on them, probably with thorn bushes as well. It looks as if it's it's like the ancient equivalent of barbed wire, that for several yards, you know, 10 to 12 feet, you've got this almost solid mass that goes right down to ground level, so you couldn't really crawl underneath it, um, that makes it very difficult to get to the wall. Then you've got the wall itself. We don't actually know how high it was. It's at least 12 feet. Um, we also don't know for certain whether or not there were, uh, there was a walkway on the top and a parapet and whether or not with crenellations, I suspect there was, otherwise it doesn't make sense building a wall that initially was designed to be 10 feet wide. And later on, even when they compromise and probably do the math and realize how much stone it's going to take, it's still never less than about seven, seven and a half feet wide. So this is a very large structure. Mm-hmm. So you're probably talking... 10 to 15 feet with a parapet on top, which means that now and again, there's going to be Roman sentries or patrols coming along it. Every third of a mile, there's at least 
till the third century, there's a turret, a tower that's probably as high as the wall again. So you're talking something that might be up to 25, 30 feet high, uh, maybe with a roof on top. This is Britain, after all, putting a tiled roof would probably be a good idea. But again, we don't have direct evidence for that. Every Roman mile, there's a mile castle, one of these little, tiny little forts, really, that's got a, a gateway in it, a turret over the top, a couple of buildings inside, little sort of rectangular um, walls around it that opens out. Some of these gateways open out onto what are virtually cliffs, um, or you go about, you know, seven or eight paces, and then you'd fall down a cliff or a very steep slope. Um, so can't have been used very much. Others um, could have been useful crossing places. So if you get through one of those, you'll come into the area that's enclosed in the sort of military zone. Mm -hmm. By the later period, there's a road built behind it, like communication. That wasn't in the, the first design. Then you've got this thing which scholars call the Vallum because um, it was wrongly named when it's first mentioned in one of our Anglo-Saxon sources, and the name has stuck. It's been too much trouble. It should be called the Fossa, but... Uh, which means ditch. Uh, it's, a, it's a dirty great ditch. It's very wide. It's very deep. It has a bank on either side, and it goes all the way along the back of the, the wall. Um, and I have to, there is nothing like that anywhere else. Sorry. And I have to say that after reading your book, I have absolutely no idea what that ditch was for. Nor does anybody else. That's the, the, the consoling <laughs> thing. I mean, it, it's, it's very strange. When they abandon the wall and go up to the Antonine Wall, in some stretches at least, they build... A causeway across this 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 big ditch every sort of 250 to 300 feet that's like you know, a, a lot of work it's an awful lot of work when you can't help thinking of how many farmers needed to, or whoever it was has got to cross this thing needed to go across that often that they couldn't be bothered to walk for five minutes to the sort of you know if you don't want even every mile it wouldn't be that far to go yeah. you now have to walk more than half a mile to get there but they it's it's like a lot of things about the wall it seems you know just far more than necessary it seems excessive somehow it, it seemed i mean in that case you, be, you begin to suspect that there's lots of things being done to keep uh, men on frontier duties busy again i mean that's that's one of the old ideas and particularly a lot of archaeologists in the the 50s and 60s who'd done um who'd been conscripted into the armed forces exactly. particularly after the second world war where there were you know all these stories of having to whitewash coal and this sort of thing to just to keep them busy had this idea that this is this is what the roman emperor is doing you know you don't want these men to get bored because they might <laughs> mutiny or rebel so keep building this there was even a theory at one point that doesn't seem to be true that the wall was was whitewashed so you had to keep this thing right <laughs> but again from you know what as i said earlier a lot of Roman soldiers in one place is a risk as far as the emperor is concerned. And unless there's a need for them to be there, they're not going to keep them like that. They're not going to keep them concentrated under somebody's command. So there, there's got to be a purpose behind it all. Yeah. And that's the puzzle. That's the puzzle. So who was living along the wall? Uh, you popped my bubble. I, I had, you know, going to the wall in the past, I thought, oh, my poor Ligurian ancestors stationed along the wall, <laughs> suffering in this miserable place. Um, it turns out instead there are packs of Dalmatians. Yeah, all sorts. I mean, you, you get obviously the, the auxiliaries, but it's mainly half the Roman army consists of non-citizen soldiers. So... They're not legally Romans. Now, even people who are Romans might be from Gaul, from Spain, from North Africa. So the legions, there aren't too many Italians left right. um, by Hadrian's day because it's it's much more attractive to join the Praetorian Guard, which is a lot better paid and less risky. Um, and also, as Italy gets more prosperous, you know, a lot of people join the Roman army because they can't get work elsewhere. If there's plenty of work, you don't join up. 
But no, it's not really, you know, there's this old image of these poor Italians shivering in northern Britain on this wall. Mostly these are people, there's a lot from the Rhineland, there's a lot from Belgium area, there's a lot from Holland, there's a lot, quite a few from Britain, a lot of Germans, a lot of Spanish, a lot of Thracians, modern day Bulgaria, that area, um, Dalmatians from the Danube, you know, and a few Syrians um, from the East, people from North Africa. So there's quite a variety of, of the population of the empire. But also, um, one interesting thing, though, that's easy to forget is that at any time in Britain, in the army, you have at least four Roman senators hmm. and three more young men who are going to be senators. So with a Senate of only 600, these people do tours of duty of one year, maybe three years at the most. Quite a high proportion of the Senate will have come to Roman Britain hmm. and they will have come as, as officers, which probably means there's a fair chance they will have gone up to Hadrian's Wall. So quite a lot of significant people in the empire have actually been to this out-of-the-way place. But most of the ones living there, the, you know, the officers come for a couple of years. Um, the commanders of auxiliary units tend to be, they're definitely Roman citizens and they're usually equestrians. They're, they're the, the next social class down from the Senate. But they are from all over the empire because so many people have got Roman citizenship. They are, they are, but quite interestingly, they, they want to live the life of a sort of Mediterranean gentleman. So mm -hmm. the commander's house in the middle of the fort is built around a central courtyard with a nice peaceful garden with plenty of shade to keep out the hot Mediterranean sun. <laughs> Not a big problem in Northern Britain for much of the year, although freakishly this year, we've just had two months of, of almost unbroken sunshine. So, but you know, that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Um, so there are people living the Italian way and there will be some Italians there and there'll be, be people from all over the empire, but it's, it's a mixture and it starts with soldiers, but very quickly, Although they're not supposed to, to be married, many soldiers clearly are and raise families. So around every fort, you get a civilian settlement that's at least as big and sometimes bigger very, very quickly that sometimes gets more formal status. So, so what's, the, uh, what's the estimate then of the number of sort of civilian uh, towns along the wall? Well, the problem is that, again, they're, they're, what, they're, they're called a vicus or vici. So there's one around each of the 17 forts, as far as we can tell, though we haven't excavated all of the forts, so we can't be sure. At least up until about 300, things change then. So you've probably got at least as many civilians, if not more, than you have soldiers on the wall. That's apart from the locals who are already living there. And in some cases, you know, you see these little farms are still occupied throughout the period. Others we haven't dated yet. One thing that again has become clear in the last few decades, the wall was nearly always built on top of land that was already being plowed. And you can see the plow marks underneath the foundations of the wall and of the forts. So this is already a rather more densely populated area and well cultivated area than we tended to think in the past that it was always this sort of wild um, north. Also, there, there's a fair bit of evidence that the climate, at least around about 100 AD, so a little bit before the walls built, was more like the climate today in Kent and southeastern England. It was milder. Mm -hmm. And only by the end of the second century does it come to something more like the, the climate today. So that may also have encouraged a wider population that perhaps declines a little bit with the Roman period. But Roman soldiers are paid in regularly in hard currency, so lots of people come to sell them things as soon as they settle anywhere. One of the little anecdotes you have is uh, actually page 101 of the basic books edition is of a, a merchant from Palmyra in Syria. 
whose traces can be found in the archaeology, and who married a British woman, uh, a slave, and then and then married took a slave, a British woman, then married her. It's just astounding the sort of the uh, the lengths uh, to which people came to go, uh, li- the literal lengths they came to come to the wall. Um, it, it's. A- Sorry, it's a very cosmopolitan world. And it, it's, you know, in that case, we've got the tombstone of his wife, Regina. And it's she's she's depicted, even though this, you know, this Britain, this former slave, she's depicted as a proper Roman matron sitting in her chair. And the inscription's all in Latin until the last line that's in a dialect of Aramaic that goes from right to left and says, Regina, the wife of Barates, alas. Hmm. So, you know, you feel there's this story. It's obviously difficult to tell. She'd been a slave, so she probably didn't have a lot of choice about marrying him mm-hmm. um, in the first place. But, you know, is this a genuine romance? Is this compulsion? Certainly on his side, you know, he, this, there seems to have been deep emotion. And it's the thought that these people from opposite ends of the world mm-hmm. have met and shared a life together and end up settling. You know, she was from southern Britain, not from the north, but right. that's where they end up living. And you think, well, if people are moving about, we certainly know that goods are, that pottery, that fashions are. You can tell that people are wearing the same style of shoes on Hadrian's Wall that they're wearing in Egypt or Syria. You know, within 10 years or so, fashions in footwear changed throughout the empire and nobody's wearing the old stuff anymore. Um, you know, it's that sort of glimpse of an almost modern world. You suspect that as well you're dealing with ideas, with, with maybe with songs, with jokes, with stories that are also going throughout the empire. It's that sort of... Um, even though the pace of travel is relatively slow, nevertheless, people are doing it in, in great numbers. Um, one of the really spectacular finds of the last, I, I don't, when, when were the Vindolanda writing tablets uh, first discovered? It's, oh, I can't remember, I think it's late 70s. Yeah. It started. Up until, uh, I mean, for historians, um, all this is a little bit, is always interesting, but of course, there is a, a built-in skepticism towards the things, the little, the nice stories archaeologists tell about the things that they find. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can't help ourselves. Uh, uh, but then in the late, in the late 70s, they found this really extraordinary uh, find of these writing tablets explain what they are and what they've done for us well it, they are written there are two types really but the, the most useful ones are the ones where they've taken a very thin sheet of wood given it a light coating with wax and used it as paper and often they fold they can be hinged so they fold up you seal them it becomes a letter and they are the ones that people threw away but at Vindolanda, they built a succession of forts on top of each other, and the, the men tasked with demolishing the old fort didn't do that good a job. So they tended to sort of just knock it down as quickly as they could, not clear most of the rubble away. And the combination of that and the waterlogged ground has created a seal, which means that um, woods survive lots of other natural materials that normally would have just decayed years and years ago turn up. And on these pieces of wood, you found little scratches that when studied and, you know, some of them are just one word or a couple of letters, but others are quite full texts and they're private documents, they're accounts, they're bills of sale, they're private letters. You know, the the one I'm particularly fond of and perhaps one of the most famous ones is an invitation to a birthday party written by the commander's wife, probably at Corbridge, to the commander's wife at Vindolanda on the 11th of September sometime probably in the very beginning of the second century AD. So 102, 103. We don't have the year. We just have the date. So it's after all, when you're should, inviting somebody to a birthday party, you don't need to tell them what year it's in. <laughs> what I should point out, I mean, these, these all predate the actual creation of the wall, correct? 
So far, yeah. uh, so far they haven't found any, but they are still turning up. Last summer's excavation, um, they found, I think, about 45 or 50 that look in very good state that have not yet been published and deciphered. Um, and this, this had happened. I, I was at the, the, the site doing a talk there last summer for the, the novel. And what it looks as if happened is that these were being taken probably in a bucket or a basket to be burnt on a bonfire and there was a hole in the, the basket because they were found in a long line huh. underneath in this buried barrack block. Now, those actually date slightly earlier than most of the other finds. These are probably to the 80s AD, huh. possibly about 90s. Um, so there is a chance when they excavate other levels, maybe we'll be lucky. Maybe we'll turn up something that will tie in with the, the time of the wall. Um, the, the most striking thing about them is that they are so mundane. They are the sort of thing I remember another archaeologist who'd been in charge of all the historic monuments in Scotland, so had been a civil servant for decades, saying most of this is the sort of stuff that came across my desk every day. You know, it's it's trivial, it's mundane, it's dull. Um, the fact that it's 1,800 years old makes it fascinating. Yeah, exactly. uh, because it gives us that glimpse we don't normally get. We'll get this elsewhere in Egypt, say, on papyrus, right. but you don't tend to get it in Britain. They were using papyrus in Britain, but none of the the few fragments that have survived have been able to be deciphered. The, you know, the, there were some, but papyrus was expensive. Wood was a lot cheaper. And this is an army that records absolutely everything, but also a society. You know, merchants wanted everything down in their books because they might have to show these books if there was any legal dispute and all this sort of thing. So it's a society of records, of writing, of lists, of numbers, mm-hmm. um, and of being able to, to go and find what you needed to find. So, you know... It's still a tiny, tiny fraction of what was there, yeah. but at least we've got this this glimpse. It, it just shows why we need to save all our receipts and then bury them in mm, our, in our yes. back garden. For the benefit of historians in the yeah, future. Exactly. Um, preferably uh, try laminating them. Maybe wax seems to be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, uh, you, you, as I said at the beginning of the uh, podcast, you uh, have simultaneously, uh, at least in the U.S., your second novel in your series, based in Vindolanda, just appeared. Um, and this raises the delicate question. Uh, you've uh, previously been writing a historical novel set in the Peninsular Wars, uh, the Napoleonic Wars of uh, 1808, I think is when you began, 1806. Yep. And, um, and that was sort of uh, almost a little, I, I'm sure, a mental recreation from uh, doing classical history. Uh, and now you're actually written a book about Hadrian's Wall uh, at the same time as you're writing novels about a, a fellow and sort of the pre-Hadrian's Wall. Um, aren't you afraid of having your wires crossed? A little bit. I mean, um, funnily enough, I... I was asked to write the novels first and then at the meeting with the publisher they said oh by the way would you do us this non-fiction book on Hadrian's Wall and I did sort of pause a bit because I thought well am I going to be doing the you know there is a great danger that you invent something that is so plausible that after a while you forget you've invented it (laughs) and if you write fiction about the Roman army in the Roman period particularly in northern Britain at that time the records are so thin in terms of the major events that you are having to make up a lot. And there's lots we don't understand about the Roman army. So this gives me the opportunity to try out some of the ideas I've had over the years as a scholar and think, well, maybe they did it this way. Because, uh, you know, in a story, somebody can't open a door and there's nothing there. You know, you've got to have, you've got to know what, you've got to at least pretend you know. So it's, um, it is a worry. I'm slightly, one of the other reasons I said, okay, I'll do this, is that my next main nonfiction book is on, Philip II and Alexander the Great. So I'm 
I'm moving back. I'm going Macedonian for a bit. So I sort of feel the, the few years while I'm right at the heart of writing these Roman novels, I'm not also going to be writing about the Roman army in nonfiction right. at the same time. Um, in a funny sort of way, it was quite useful because it meant I looked at the evidence for the, the nonfiction book. And I was looking at Hadrian's Wall and the Northern Frontier differently because one of the great things are very useful things about writing a novel is that it reminds you about timescales and how they really affect human beings. You know, an archaeologist can say, well, this find is probably early Trojanic. If I've set a story like the, the first novel in AD 98 in September, mm -hmm. I need to know whether something was actually there or not. You know, mm -hmm. early Trojanic covers 10 years or so. <laughs> and you start thinking, well, actually, the, the significance between something being built this year or next year or six months later it's a reminder, you know, for us, we're used to it because that's all the evidence we've got. So a period of 10 years archaeologically is nothing. But in human terms, that's a very long time. Yeah. It's, it also makes you ask questions. I'd never, for instance, gone too much into the idea of whether the Roman cavalry were riding stallions, geldings, or mares, or a mixture of all three. Not many other people have gone into that either. Go on. It's, there's no great reason. But when you're writing a novel and yeah. you want your character, if your character happens to be a man, it's very convenient to have him riding a mare because then you can use she for the horse. Right, yeah. And just in terms of, of clarity, it's... Yeah. <laughs> and it made me think about this. And one of the, the longest studies of this suggested that the army used stallions all the time because they'd be more aggressive and all this sort of thing, and that it's just a modern prejudice. Now... If you then go and look at what we think are the stable boxes used by the Roman army, you put three stallions yeah, in one of these things, and you are asking for serious trouble. That's, so it's, uh, it makes you think about the practical things. It's a reminder that these things, you know, your ideas have to work in practice. So I'm hoping it's been good and beneficial. So you're suggesting that for every uh, defil uh, at Oxford, also a historical novel should be written. Um, I, I think it wouldn't do any harm in a strange way. No, yeah. <laughs> but, I, I've often thought it would be a really useful exercise. People can use pseudonyms if they wish, but it's I think it's mm. a, it's a useful exercise to do. Um, but I, I, I can imagine um, one could, uh, for the purposes of a novel, have your soldiers whitewashing Hadrian's Wall and uh, come to believe that that's actually uh, what they did and why they did it. Um, that's a, It's definitely a fear, and I'm just trying to be careful because um, – it's so easy, you know, you have this vague memory and you think, well, where is it? Is it Tacitus? Is it Suetonius? Was it some fine somewhere? You don't want ever to get to the stage um, where it's just something you you made up. So I'm, I've am i tried to be, and it's one of the reasons I write historical notes at the end of the novel and I put stuff up on the website, is also to remind myself, look, this is what I've invented. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But there's so much, there, there is simply so much we don't understand about the Roman army. Um, it's how it functioned on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, you need to cover, you need to explain in a novel. So um, uh, it's it's good and bad. As I say, it's good mental exercise, but it is, uh, it's, uh, there was a, a comfort feeling I was writing about the Duke of Wellington's army in Napoleonic era. Um, and I hope to go back to those someday. Um, I hope so too. Because, series. Yeah. Um, I, I, Oh, sorry. One of, no, one of the things that, that really, mm. when I, I think I first encountered you through reading those novels, and um, one of the things that really struck me, the reason why I knew that a historian was writing it, was that my great, um, my great uh, problem, uh, even with, uh, certainly with your uh, very popular and prolific uh, predecessor, oh, there's so many P mm. alliterations there, um, in, <laughs> in, uh, in novels set in the Duke of Wellington's army, I'm speaking delicately here, mm. um, yeah. 
the uh, motivations of the characters are always almost always modern. Mm-hmm. And I read you, and it was like the first time since Patrick O'Brien where I didn't think I was w- reading about a 21st, 20th century person uh, it playing dress-up. Um, it's hard to do, and it, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I in a sense, had the the advantage that I'd, I'd become interested in history through reading those those very same novels, which, you know, when you're a schoolboy, are great oh, yarns. Oh, fantastic. Um, and, you know, the it, but it's... It's something I, I came to as a problem with the, the Roman novels in that you can get a fair idea of how Regency people spoke. Yeah. And certainly, you know, you look more and more closely and you realize it's not so much the language, it's the manners, it's the formality, it's how you address other people. Though obviously there are expressions, but coming to these Roman novels, I face the problem, we don't know yeah. how Roman soldiers and officers spoke. So I've created something that I know is artificial. I hope... Is plausible, yeah. Um, and then even more, you know, you're dealing with local tribesmen, with auxiliaries in the army. What are the differences going to be? Um, there's so little that's conversational from the Roman world, and when it's, you know, it's comedy or it's it's um, some of the few ancient novels, it tends to be written by the aristocracy for the aristocracy. So lots of things, you know, even how you're addressing each other. I, I've ended up. Um, you know, if you're dealing with somebody of higher social status or you're trying to honor them, that they'll they'll usually refer to them as my lord or my lady, which instantly sounds quite medieval. Um, but you get, you know, uh, dominus domina. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'd used the Latin, it would have seemed rather odd that these people are speaking a sort of pigeon mixture of Latin and English. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it's there are lots of things. Actually, it's much harder for me writing about this period, partly, of course, because I've, I've been studying it more formally for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was taking a couple of um, historians of, of Wellington's army around the Roman site at Caelian a couple of weeks ago when they, they were visiting. And they were, you know, I kept trying to explain to them, well, there's so much we don't know. And interestingly, they find there's much of the daily routine, the very ordinary of aspects of life in Wellington's army that nobody wrote down. Yeah, well, I, and it's recorded all very occasionally. I mean, there's a marvelous. I've just read a memoir published by um, one of them of a paymaster who gives you a very different view of all the various officers in the regiment because he's the one who you know made loans to them and then discovers he can't collect the money. He's the one who discovers that one of them is a, a multiple bigamist and has about seven wives. And he's just married every posting he's gone to. He, he you know, basically just likes marrying people um, and sends money back to them and hence the paymaster knows about this. So these are things you know you wouldn't normally get um, in the straightforward narratives. And this one, this has been, it had a very limited print run in the 1830s. He's republished it now. So there's there's lots, even about that period, you don't know. And the problems for the Romans just magnify so many more times. There's, yeah, I, I've, I've thought that looking at it, reading your novel, I was thinking this is the closest thing. Uh, it, when you start to really think about it in a, a concentrated way, it's um, it's like it's trying to reproduce the closest thing that we, we can conceive of to alien thoughts. Uh, you're trying to reproduce the thoughts of someone who has been a hostage, a, a tribal Briton who's been a hostage of the Romans. I, there are some other ana- analogs in history that we could use that might be better attested to, but still so different. It's, it's, uh, oh, it's, I mean, the advantage is no one can prove me wrong, right. Good. <laughs> but yes. I, I, what you hope you're only going to buy into a novel. If you feel it could be real, 
I think. So it's got to be plausible. Um, but I mean, aspects of it, part of the whole, because I'm dealing with, you know, quite low level military activity. To some extent, the Vindolanda novels are basically Westerns. Yeah, and, that's true. And that in part comes from growing up watching, you know, um, Westerns on TV, both the movies and the various various series, because you know in the 70s, that's pretty much what British television was, <laughs> and, and cop shows. You know, it was yeah. mostly American made, and it was it was the High Chaparral and Bonanza and John Ford Westerns. And, and Kojak. And I, hmm. Yeah, exactly. Kojak and Starsky and Hutch. You know, it was this sort of um, – but I wanted some sense of a frontier experience because – you know, what strikes me as must have been interesting about this place was that it did bring these people from different ends of the empire with locals who had a completely different worldview and experience. And, you know, can't really, it must have been very difficult for somebody, one of the, the, the people who lived up there to conceive of, you know, how big the Roman empire was. Yeah. Um, there, there's a marvelous story that's probably apocryphal, but I, I would love to be true from the first I think it's the first Sikh war in the 19th century in India where the, the Sikh army is supposed to have marched out of Lahore shouting on to Delhi, on to London when they were going to fight the British. Uh-huh. And you sort of have this image. These people believe that England was just this sort of little southern Indian state somewhere that you could walk to. Right. Um, in the same way you get stories of, you know, um, Lakota ambassadors in Washington and New York you know, argue, asking why all these people, the same people are walking around and around the hotels all the time because they, right. they can't. They've never seen populations on that scale, and it, it's, it must be a trick. Um, it's trying to get – so there are lots of analogies I've taken from – I thought, well, I'll move beyond the, the movies. I, you know, it's, it's also – I always find it interesting. The history of, of the American West was one parallel history of expansion in Africa and in India. I've, I've, there, there is a piece – I mean, the, the, the Siluris, the tribe from which our, our main character, Ferox, the Roman centurion, comes – have a lot of aspects in common with the Apaches, which <laughs> probably doesn't work because of the geography, but it made them different and yeah. slightly sort of, you know, it, it's, um, it was just trying because the Romans called these people Britons. They probably didn't think of themselves that way. These groupings were probably very, very different, mm-hmm. but most of that's gone. Yeah. Um, well, that gives me a great idea for a novel that's actually based on Kojak, but set in Ptolemy's, <laughs> Ptolemy's Alexandria. Yeah, the bold, yes, bold yeah. detective. I don't know what you do for the Greek, lollipop, but otherwise... Greek, we're... Greek, Greek, he was Greek. Um, <laughs> there it is. Um, well, Adrian Goldsworth, it's been great. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, uh, being with me on Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for inviting me again. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rudat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 